This morning, we're in Daniel chapter 4, and uh, in this chapter, we have um, really a uh, an example and a treatise, if you will, um, on pride and God's perspective on pride. And that's really what this is about. And so we want to look at that. We want to discuss it. Uh, from that perspective, because ultimately those are lessons for us to learn, for, for you and I as believers, for people who are not believers to learn, it's still applicable today. And so we want to we, we be careful to learn the lesson that is intended to be taught here. Number one, uh, in verse one, uh, we find that this is really, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. He's recounting the things that have happened to him, and Daniel's recording them. So let's read verse 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. So this is reported by Nebuchadnezzar. And notice the audience. The, the audience is all people, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth. Nebuchadnezzar was, was desirous, and God recorded this in his word, that everyone would hear the lesson that, is, that he has experienced and would gain insight as a result. And then God recorded that in his word. Turn with me, if you will, for just a moment, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse 35. And it says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. It just stands as a reminder for you and I that if God would take the time to record this, that there stands for you and I a lesson to be learned today, something that we need to take in and grapple with and come to a biblical conclusion about. And Isaiah 55, if you'll turn there with me for a moment, Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 7. Actually, I'm going to begin in verse 6. It says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call you upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and returns not thither, but waters the earth, and makes it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto uh, I sent it. So in other words, for you and I, God has taken the time to record this. He's taken the time, even though this is something that Nebuchadnezzar is telling him, he's saying, this is important. This is significant enough. This thing that I did with Nebuchadnezzar, I did for a reason. And we're going to talk about that as we progress this morning. There is a lesson for us today. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time making application because the application is the lesson. It's the thing that we need to learn. And Nebuchadnezzar continues on in verse 2. He says, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God has wrought toward me. I want to tell you, I want to proclaim. That's what it says. It was good to show or to proclaim the things, the signs and wonders, all that God had done in his life. The expressed intent of King Nebuchadnezzar is to make known the works of God that he has experienced. Those things that have happened to him. 
and he wants to share the lesson that he's learned. Turn with me to Psalm 71. Psalm 71, and we're going to read verse 18 this morning. Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. Here we are, and we stand as those who have trusted in the Lord. We have tasted and seen that he's good. We've witnessed firsthand his faithfulness. We've witnessed probably firsthand his loving chastisement and correction. And would we be like the psalmist who says, when I am old, when I am gray-headed, let me not fail. Let me not pass from this life to the next until... I have made known until I have very clearly showed the strength, the power of God to the next generation. Till I have spoken those things that they need to hear. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. That's what he is operating in. And that's where we as believers need to have that same idea. Not, in, not just in regard to our families. We have that specifically ingrained within us. And we have in Deuteronomy chapter six, the idea that we are to teach our children and raise them in the ways of God. But beyond that, am I proclaiming? Am I proclaiming the works of God, his faithfulness in my life to those around me? Psalm 92 verses one through five. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. And sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. Upon an instrument of ten strings and upon the psaltery, upon the harp with a solemn sound. For thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. O Lord, how great are thy works and thy thoughts are very deep. Before we move on, let's look at Acts 26. Acts 26, verses 9 through 19. In this chapter, Paul is standing before King Agrippa, and he has the opportunity here to share the gospel, to make known the works of God. This is what he's called to do. This is what he's been specifically tasked with. But here's one of our memory verses, right, for this next week. Go ye therefore into all the nations, make disciples, teaching them to obey whatsoever I've commanded you. This is what we are told to do. To proclaim the works of God in redeeming mankind and sending his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf that we might be saved. In Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 9, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I did in Jerusalem and many of the saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voices against them. So here's Paul, and he says, When I was Saul, before I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I was zealous to persecute Christians. In fact, I put them to death. I was one who would witness against them. Verse 11, And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. 
but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee. Verse 18, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them, which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I have not, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Here's Paul, and he begins his interaction with King Agrippa with his testimony. This is what God has done in my life. This is where I was, persecutor of the church, enemy of God. This is where I've been redeemed, and this is who redeemed me. And he stands firm and without any shame, without any uh, desire to cover anything. Though what he is saying, what he is preaching may not be popular, he declares it boldly. And in the same way, we must do the same. We must be those who would be the ambassadors, the messengers of God to a lost and dying world. We've been lit, so to speak, Matthew chapter 5, for the purpose of shining light into the darkness. To proclaim it boldly, to proclaim it without equivocation, so that those around us may know. We are to proclaim the works of God, the works of God that we have experienced, the works of God that we read in Scripture. We share those things. Verse 3, he says, How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar dives into this praise uh, of the living God. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. God is an axiomatic. He's self-proving, not only through prophecy, but by the miracles that he accomplishes around by the miracles that he accomplishes, whether it's through his prophets, through his representatives, uh, the apostles, those those things. Here, Nebuchadnezzar firsthand experiences the work of God in his life. We're going to look at what that looked like uh, to the end that he was teaching them a specific lesson, but we're going to look at that. God is self-proving. Okay, The power of God exercised man, uh, amongst mankind, it is there, and it is there for us to see. When we stand here in the, and, and we recognize and we give thanks and praise, we're acknowledging the hand of God moving in our lives in the world around us. And it may be simple things. It may be those things that would seem inconsequential to those around us, to those who are outside of faith. But for you and I who are inside of faith, who are trusting in the Lord, we know because the Scripture tells us that He is providentially engaged in our lives, that He is moving to instruct us and correct us, that he is moving to mold us into the image of Christ. And therefore, we can with surety know that he is working all around us. And we see that these confirmatory miracles, and, we, and we, as we witness them in Scripture, we find that that's just what they are, confirmation of who God is and his engagement with mankind. Not a create everything and stand back and see what happens. Not a non-existent God, but a God who is the creator, sustainer, provider, corrector, etc., 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 of the world, of the universe. In Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. He concludes this chapter and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who was first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. 
God's ways are not our ways, we would read in the book of Isaiah. They're vastly greater and superior to ours. Nobody stood by when God decided to do this or to do that and said, this is a good idea or that's a bad idea. Nobody was instructing him. Nobody was giving him insight into what he should do. Nobody was showing God wisdom. He is superior in all things. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. If we, if we just take a moment to gather some context, the first verse of the book of Hebrews says that God in sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. In other words, that was how he communicated in the past. And it might have looked different with this prophet or that prophet, but in the end, that was they were his mouthpiece. But it says, he in these last days spoke unto us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. We have the complete confirmation and conclusion of the word of God in Jesus Christ and the revelation that he granted to those who he appointed to pen scripture. It's finished. Okay? He begins in chapter 2, he says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. In other words, pay attention, grab onto, and hold fast those things that we know to be true. Here is God in His existence. Here is God in His goodness, in His justice, in His mercy, in His love towards us. And we're going to hold on to those things, even if the world around us is denying those things. We're going to proclaim the works of God no matter what. Just for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which was at the first begun to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? So in the beginning, here's Jesus Christ. He's establishing uh, with just these handful of guys, unlearned, uneducated fishermen and tax collectors. There was one doctor among them, but just regular people, and he uses them to change the world, to make himself known to the world around him. And he goes on, he says, God also, so here's Jesus Christ instructing them, sending them out, God also bearing them, those who have been sent, witness both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. This isn't something that you and I are going to conjure up. This isn't something that you and I are going to manifest in and of ourselves. This is something that God is going to accomplish through us, despite ourselves oftentimes. And not every time. At His will, at His deciding. Just as He's done here with Nebuchadnezzar, and He chose Nebuchadnezzar to instruct mankind about this particular lesson, in the end, he may use you and I to be the sole communicator of his truth to this person over here. And he may confirm that in you or through you or around you with a sign or a wonder or a miracle or whatever it may be, however he chooses to. God is axiomatic. He's going to confirm his truth if necessary. Now, we have to be careful. We have to balance that because we don't seek the signs. That's not what we're after. We're seeking the one who gives them. God isn't confirming the sign. He's not confirming the miracle. He's confirming who he is. In Luke chapter 16, turn there with me for a moment. And I bring this up because there are those who seek after the sign. They're looking for the next thing. They're, and it's almost like a spiritual addiction. And God is somehow far from me if I'm not firsthand experiencing the miraculous, sensational interaction with God that I'm desiring, which isn't true. 
God is always near, as we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. He tabernacles in the believer. We are the temple of the living God as the Holy Spirit indwells us. We have this direct access into his presence through faith in Jesus Christ. Not through a miracle or a sign or a wonder. We're not in pursuit of those things. We're in pursuer of the one who would do those things. Luke chapter 16, verse 31. This is where Jesus is giving the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And they both died and they go down and the rich man goes to uh, Hades and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. And when he sees Abraham over there, uh, Lazarus over there, he says, Father Abraham, tell that guy to bring me some water. And he says, well, we can't do that. There's this chasm here. It's against the rules. That's, sorry, we can't do that. And he says, I have brothers. Go send Lazarus back from the dead so that he might tell my brothers and they don't end up in the same place that I'm in. In other words, give them a sign, give them a miracle, give them some further witness. And this is his response. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they don't hear the word of God, if truth will not resonate with them, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. It's not going to matter if we send them. They have everything necessary in Scripture. We're not in pursuit of the sign. We're in pursuit of the one who gave it. John chapter 6, verse 30. And this should be familiar for us Sunday school bunch, right? Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's just fed the multitude with two loaves and some fish. And when they picked up the fragments, everything that was left over, there was 12 baskets of leftover food. He's done this mighty miracle. And the very next day, they ask him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? What confirmation, what sign will you give us that we might believe they're not looking for an answer to their faith. They don't have a faith question. They have a stomach question. Listen, yesterday you fed us lunch. What's for breakfast? What's for breakfast? That, that, that's really where they're at. God may choose to confirm something to someone but it isn't anything that we have to conjure up. It isn't something that we're manifesting. It's his will to do it or not to do it. He knows their heart. Our job is to share the truth, to proclaim the goodness and the works of God. Just as Nebuchadnezzar is, do, is doing here. And he concludes his, his conclusion of this. Uh, and I think in many respects, he's referring even back to his dream in chapter three, uh, excuse me, chapter two. No, chapter three. Uh, and he says that his, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Right, and we, we looked at that. Here's this stone cut out of the mountains without hands and it comes and it hits the statue in the feet and it destroys all of those kingdoms and then it spreads until it fills the entire earth. And as we look at the kingdom of God that is established at Jesus's, incarnation we see that it is never going to cease we see it as not only that it isn't going to end and in isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 unto us a son is given right that that's reference to and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor the mighty god the everlasting father, prince of peace, and the increase of his government, there shall be no end. It started at Christ's incarnation. And here's Nebuchadnezzar referring back to what he's already learned, proclaiming those things that he has already seen and heard. All right, that's where we pick up the scene. That's where we begin. That's where Nebuchadnezzar's heart lies but think about it. This is after the fact. This is him reporting what has already happened. 
He already learned the lesson. So this is where we pick things up here in Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 through 27, right? And I realize that's a big chunk of scripture, but that's where we find the dream and the, the circumstances surrounding its interpretation in this chapter. So Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And again, he calls all the, the, the Chaldeans and the astrologers and the magicians. He calls everyone to come and give him the interpretation of that dream. And they can't do it. And finally, Daniel comes, verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar. That's his, that's his Babylonian name. According to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and before him I told him the dream, saying. Okay? He tells him what it is, and he tells him, hey, these guys can't interpret it. Let's read what the dream was, beginning in verse 10. I saw... And behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and, it was, uh, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all the flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. Don't be confused. A watcher is simply an angel. It's all it's just referring to an angelic being coming down. And this watcher, in verse 14, he cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree, cut it down, and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts, of the, uh, beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let, it, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him. Let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones, to the intent, this is the reason, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomever he will and sets up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. That's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. There's a tree there, a giant tree that goes up to the sky. Everyone's fed from it. The birds live in the branches. The angel comes down and says, cut it down, cut it to pieces, but leave the stump and band the stump with, iron, with, with brass and iron and change the heart of it from the heart of a man to the heart of a beast. Until seven times have passed over. That's the dream. Now let's look at some of the symbols, because obviously it's symbolic of something. It's representative of something. Daniel gives the meaning of the dream. He gives the interpretation. This is what God says it means by Daniel in verses 19 through 27. Okay. First off, he's astonished. He says he's astonished for one hour. He's beside himself and that he knows what it means. Um, and he, he, he ends the verse 19. He says, my Lord, the dream be to them that hate thee and interpretation thereof to thine enemies. Nebuchadnezzar, this is not good for you. This isn't good for you. That's, that's what he says. He says, the tree that you saw, which grew, which was strong, whose height reached under the heaven and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair and the fruit thereof much. And in it was meat for all under which the beasts of the field dwell that upon the branches, the fowls of the heaven had made their habitation. It is thou, O king, thou art grown and become strong for thy greatness is grown and reach unto heaven and thy dominion to the end of the earth. The tree is representative of Nebuchadnezzar. Represents him. 
And he says, and whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and as the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High. Note, this is the decree of the Most High. This is something that God is doing specifically. This is something that he is permitting, that he is bringing to pass, which has come upon my Lord, the King, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till... Thou know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. That's an important statement. The purpose of all of this, the lesson that you would learn, is that thou know the Most High. Nebuchadnezzar, you are not God. He rules from heaven and he gives the kingdom to whomever he chooses. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, Thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee after that thou hast known that the heavens do rule. In the banded stump left there, it's the providence of God to preserve the empire and the promise of Nebuchadnezzar's restoration to the throne. Okay, so we have this period of time where Nebuchadnezzar, his heart has changed from that of a man to that of a beast. And that's representative of something. And we're going to look at that in just a moment here. Um, but the idea is that he learns this lesson. The most important thing, the intent of all of this, and what, it's not what we focus on the most as we look at accounts and as you read commentaries, they, they, they focus on him being driven from men, him being like a beast. But the intent, what God is trying to teach here is that he is supreme, that he is sovereign, that he is the ruler. That's what he's teaching us. To instruct the living that God rules supreme. Look with me at verse 17 again. This is a matter by the decree. Watch it. To the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets up over it the basest of men. Verses 25 and 26 again. You're going to be driven. Until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he pleases. Verse 34, and at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose name, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. When he learned the lesson, he was restored to his senses. He was restored to his kingdom. Okay, here, something I just want to point out. It says that he's going to be here, it says it twice, until seven times pass over him. It's symbolic of completion, of fulfillment. It doesn't, here in the text, there's nothing specific that would indicate how long this period of time is. It could just as easily be seven days as it is seven years. It's symbolic. How long was Nebuchadnezzar going to be without his reason? Until he learned the lesson. That's what the word says, until he learns the lesson. Until it's complete, until he's learned his lesson. And then when we see him learning his lesson, when at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes. When he lifted his eyes up, when he acknowledged that God rules from heaven, that's when his reason returned to him. So it's symbolic. It doesn't have to be some specific number of anything. He learned his lesson. The, the language, nothing in here would give us any concrete. It's not like the days of creation where we have in the evening and the morning were the first day. And it can only mean a literal 24-hour period. We, we don't have any of those things here. It's literal and, and it's Aramaic, so it's not exactly the same. But it's, it's here without any... Uh, context to limit it to a specific set period of time. So that's what we know. 
It was designed specifically to teach him the lesson. Now, the idea here, the lesson to be learned is that God rules from heaven. It's a dealing with Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And I want to give you a definition for pride. Because we talk about pride, we talk about what it means, but from a biblical perspective, what is it? It's deposing or removing God from his rightful position as creator, sustainer, gifter, and savior, and you can fill in other blanks there, and assuming the position for ourselves. That's what pride is. It's like saying, I am God. I know better than God. I... That's what it's saying. I'm removing him from that position and putting myself in it. And we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar do that here in just a moment. Haughtiness, which is related to it, haughtiness is to inflate one's position. It's kind of that holier-than-thou uh, attitude. I'm more important than you. I'm more qualified than you. And arrogance is the outward or the ornamental display of haughtiness. Okay, so, so that's, that's sort of in a quick biblical definition. That's what pride is. It's putting myself in the position of God. It's removing him from that position and putting myself there. And then we may inflate ourselves. We may manifest that outwardly in such a way that people would see it. Uh, we see the um, we see the Pharisees doing this in Matthew chapter six. They're they're as Jesus is speaking, he talks about when they fast. Everybody knows they're fasting. When they pray, they stand out here where everybody can see them praying. And he says, listen, they have had their reward. He says, do those things secretly, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's their ornamental display of their position. We know better than God, so therefore we're going to do these things. And this is how we're going to do them. We get to define what is righteous and what isn't righteous. Pharisees did the same thing. So let's look at the king's pride. Let's look at the example that God himself is using here to teach us the lesson that he is sovereign, that he rules. Number one, he established, Nebuchadnezzar was established by God. Okay, we looked at this in Daniel chapter two for just briefly, Daniel chapter two, verse 37 and 38. Um, speaking of that statue, that picture that was there, he says, thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. All of that is given to him by God. None of it is of his own. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, has he given into thine hand, and has made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Okay, we've talked about Jeremiah chapter 27. That's where God is telling Judah through the prophet Jeremiah that Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is my instrument of correction. And not only I'm going to use him, and I've given all kingdoms into his hand. In Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter uh, 1, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Uh, he says, Behold you among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I will raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. Chaldeans, that's Babylon. That's, who, that's who's being discussed here. And he's going to make of them the Chaldeans. And he says, you won't believe it because the Chaldeans were insignificant. Yet here they are established by God. I will raise them up. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup as sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings and the princes, shall be a scorn unto them. They shall decide every, deride rather, every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. 
Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Okay, did you just see what's going to? God's going to establish the Chaldeans. He's going to raise up. He's going to give them the ability to conquer all these other nations. And, and he gives that in that poetic language. Their horses are swifter than leopards, so on and so forth. And then what does it say at the very end? Then shall his mind change. He shall pass over. He's going to overstep and he's going to offend, imputing this his power unto his God. It wasn't God, the, the living God who was established. And he's going to say that it was his God, that, that, that it was some false God. And as we look at what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here of himself in verse 30. Actually, let's begin here in verse 28. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. Everything that we just read, the interpretation of all that just happened. This came upon Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of this kingdom by the might of my power for the honor of my majesty? He assumed the throne of God in his heart. You see, Babylon is his temple. This is the manifestation. This is where the manifestation of my glory is established. Not acknowledging God who has established him, and he knows it. Nebuchadnezzar knows it because Daniel told him, you have been given this kingdom. You are the head of gold. Yet he oversteps. I have ascended. This is my glory. This is my majesty. In Isaiah chapter 14, and we looked at this uh, last week, I believe, but in Isaiah 14, as we're looking at the part of the, the, the coming judgment of Babylon, and this is where we read this, we see some insight, some further insight into the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 4, Thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How hath the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased, the broken staff of the wicked and the scepter of the ruler. He's going to be smitten, right? He, you're going to fall. Your kingdom is going to end. And that's what he talks about. And then as we read through this, um, and we get down to um, verse 10, all they that speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp, thy majesty, all that, that show that you had about you is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials, the worm is spread under, under thee, and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? This is still speaking about Nebuchadnezzar. This is still speaking about why he's coming, why he's going to be judged. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you should be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Now, I personally believe that there is a, uh, that there is a literal application to uh, Satan here. But in context, this is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar. He was exalting himself. He was saying, this is me. This is the throne. This is Babylon is my temple. And if you look at historically, you look at Babylon, it was renowned for its beauty. I mean, you had the, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, which one of the lost world wonders. You have all of these things that are true of Babylon. It was, he was, at this point, he's beyond his conquering phase. And Nebuchadnezzar is really into his building and construction phase. This is probably, give or take, about 10 years before the end of his life. And so Babylon is flourishing. And that's what, that's what he says. Listen, I was in my kingdom. Maybe not. I thought I said he was flourishing. Doesn't matter. Here he is. 
He looks, this is the temple to my, this is, this is for my honor, for my majesty. This is by the might of my power. He has deposed God. He's taken him from his throne, from his rightful position, and exalted himself to that position. The punishment was avoidable. Okay, the, the, the punishment the, the, is that he's going to be run out of his kingdom, and he's going to have to spend that time out there living as an animal, eating the grass, sleeping on the ground. The dew's going to cover him. His hair's going to grow out like eagle's feathers, all of those things that we read about. He's going to be like a beast, like an animal of the field. That's, that's the punishment for him until he learns a lesson, but it's avoidable. Look at me in verse 27. Daniel pleads with the king at the end. He gives him the interpretation of this dream. This is what's going to happen. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee. Right? This is it. This is my counsel. And break off thy sins by righteousness. He says, repent. Turn from what you're doing. Let your heart be corrected and thine iniquities by showing your mercy to the poor. If it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. I'm convinced that it's avoidable. The Nebuchadnezzar could have learned the lesson from the dream itself, yet he didn't. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah, by way of a little more support of that, Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 10. God speaking through Jeremiah says, At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it? If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I have thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning the kingdom to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight that it obey me, obey not my voice then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. And God says, listen, I'm going to deal with those nations who, who will repent, who will turn their heart toward me in such a way that they prosper. And those who don't will be brought low. They'll be humbled. And we witness this in Jonah. We see this very thing happen in Nineveh. God tells Jonah, his prophet, to go to Nineveh to tell them, and that's the capital city of the Assyrians. He says, listen, go there and tell them that they need to repent. And Jonah doesn't want to go because he doesn't like the Assyrians. He, in many respects, is puffed up in his pride, and he says, I know better than God. And so he gets on a ship, and he heads to Tarshish. We all know they throw him out. He gets swallowed by the well. He gets spit up there on the beach in Assyria. He goes to Nineveh, and eventually... As he gets into the middle of the city, because it was a pretty big place, he starts to say, repent. It's not what he says, though. He says, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Let's look at Jonah chapter 3 for just a moment. Almost, almost there. Jonah chapter 3. Verse 10. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Jonah has come in, and he said, hey, judgment is coming. Um, and what happens? Well, the king of Nineveh hears the message, and he commands everyone that they would repent. They all put on sackcloth and ashes, even their animals. He says, we're going to turn our heart from the sins that we have. We are going to be repentant. And God saw their works, it says in verse 10, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Just like he said he would in Jeremiah. Just like he would have for Nebuchadnezzar. 
And then in verse 11 of chapter 4, as, as Jonah is upset because God would spare the Ninevites, those that he hated, these, these Assyrian enemies of Israel, and God gives them, right, this is where the gourd grows up and all these things, gives them a little shade while he's up there waiting for the destruction of Nineveh from, you know, from the good seats. And God strikes the gourd and it dies and Jonah's woe is me because now I don't even have this shade anymore. And that's, that's where he's at. And God responds and he rebukes Jonah in this way. I'm going to begin in verse 10. He says, the Lord said, thou hast pity on the gourd for the which thou hast not labored. Neither madest thou grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. He says, you would grieve for this little plant that sprouted in a night and died in a night. You would grieve for that, but you wouldn't grieve for the thousands and thousands of people that were about to be destroyed. God says, I took heed to them, I paid attention to them because they repented, because they turned from their evil ways and turned to me. Nebuchadnezzar stands here and he says, listen, I was at ease. I was, everything was going my way. This is a good place for me to be. This Babylon, this great city, this, this wonder of the world, is my temple. This is where my glory is displayed. This is where my honor will live on. <clears throat> Verse 31 in Daniel chapter 4, while the word was in the king's mouth, while he was there speaking with himself, this is it, this is, I've arrived. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and they and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomsoever he will. Nebuchadnezzar, this is not your temple. Nebuchadnezzar, this isn't your kingdom. God who rules from heaven has given it to you. And then you're going to live in the field with the beast until you learn that lesson. Until you humble yourself. Until you acknowledge God. God used the king to teach this, world to, this lesson to the world. And he's done the same in the past. He used uh, Pharaoh, as you look in Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 16. And then we get into Romans chapter 9, verse 17. He says, listen, tell Nebuchadnezzar, Moses, tell, not Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, tell Pharaoh that I have established you so that I might show the world my power and my glory. And then we get that confirmation in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, that that's exactly what happened. That God was using the fall of Pharaoh, the hardness of his heart, to bring about instruction to the world. Now, the lesson that we're finding today, this lesson is needed now more than ever, probably more so than in Nebuchadnezzar's day. In Acts chapter 17, if you'll turn there with me, in Acts chapter 17, we find Paul in Athens... And as he's there on Athens, he's walking through the midst of all of these idols. Um, and as he passes by, he notices that there's one that is dedicated to the unknown God. To the unknown God. Now, if pride is deposing, is taking God from his throne and putting ourselves in that position, it's so much less of a leap if we don't have to first remove him from that position. And the world is predisposed, as we read in the book of Romans, chapters 1 and 2, is predisposed to not acknowledge God's existence in the first place. We are separated, we are condemned by the very existence of God and Him being holy and righteous and just. Therefore, 
we don't want to keep that in our remembrance. So here is the unknown God being discussed in verse 20, uh, 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious, you're too religious. For as I passed by and behold your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And Paul just uses that. He's not saying that the that was an idol that was correct or that they got it right. He says, no, I want to talk to you about the God that you do not know. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. Neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things. And is made of one blood, all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Right, and we, we continue on and we see this and he talks about the, the, the offspring of God uh, or being made the offspring of God, being adopted into the family of God. And at the end, at the conclusion of this, what we find is there are very, very few converts. There are those, a few, says, how be it, verse 34, how be it certain men clave unto him and believe. But most of them, in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. There wasn't a lot of converts as a response to what Paul is preaching here. They don't want to hear about God. They don't want to. They want to remain on the throne themselves. They're prideful. We know that we're worshiping correctly because we have all these idols. We've covered all the bases, but even having a, an idol to a God that we don't know of. In Psalm verse 9, Psalm verse 9, um, excuse me, chapter 9, Psalm chapter 9. Verse 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and, and all the nations that forget God. I mean, that's, that is the end result. Those who are not acknowledging of God, those who are unwilling to say, listen, he has the rightful place in my life, that he is the creator, that he is just, that he is within his right as the creator to proclaim me to be sinful. And as a result of that, I am deserving of death. The problem is that when, when people remove God from that position, they remove him from the position of being the provider of everything necessary for salvation. The one who provided the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The one who mediated the terms of our forgiveness. Who is now sitting down because it is finished. And there's nothing left yet to be done. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I bring Deuteronomy chapter 8 up because here's the nation of Israel, God's people. And, and, as, and if this is a lesson that we need to learn as well, not just those who are outside, because we have temptations ourselves. We have those sin issues that we struggle with as believers. And the nation of Israel, as they're coming into the promised land, or they're faced with almost coming into the promised land, they're getting ready for it. God tells them, beginning in verse 11, by Moses. Uh, beginning verse 10, rather. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Right? This isn't some land that we have somehow brought to fruit ourselves. This isn't our work. This isn't the majesty. This isn't the temple of our glory and of our honor. He says, beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, 
Then thine heart be lifted up. Be puffed up. Become proud. Depose God from his position. Remove him from the throne and put ourselves there. And forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through the great and the terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And now shall say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand have gotten me this wealth. Just like Nebuchadnezzar. And here are the people of God, and they've seen everything that God has done. He's led them through the wilderness. He's provided them water miraculously. He's given them the bread of heaven. He's provided the quail. He's made sure that their clothes don't wear out. He's provided safety and shelter over and over, time and time again, as they were in the wilderness. Even perhaps without them knowing, as Balaam, Balak comes to Balaam and says, curse them that we might have defeat them. And God only allows him to proclaim blessing. Over and over and over again, yet they overlook and they listen. Here's everything going my way. Here I am flourishing, just like Nebuchadnezzar, this by my power, by my might, by my strength. And we remove God from his position. We put ourselves right there and say, yeah, this was me. To you and I, he says, thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. For it is he that gives thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant with which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord by thy God, and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall you perish because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. As we were talking about obedience just the other day, and we, we noted that there's this link between trust, between faith and obedience, yet unstudied, but in process, right? That here it is. I did not trust the Lord to provide those things for me. I did not trust the word of God that he promised to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. I did not trust, as scripture would say to you and I as New Testament believers, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Therefore, I put my trust in something else that I could taste, touch, feel, and experience. And I removed him from the throne and put myself up there. In our pride, we remove God from his position. And sadly, in Jesus' day, and perhaps even sometimes in our day, there are those who would say, look at me, I am on the throne here. And in their haughty spirit and in their arrogance would display how great they think they are. And would say, this is the standard of righteousness, not what God has established, but what I have determined, just like the Pharisees. Nebuchadnezzar was brought low. He was brought to a point where, where he was without reason. But here's the thing. When we say without reason, we have to understand that he was fully responsible for everything that he was doing. And we know that because in the end, when he turned his heart toward the Lord, that's when he was restored. It wasn't as if he was left here to wander around and then God flipped the switch. It says that when he looked to heaven, when he acknowledged, when he learned the lesson, he was fully responsible for the sin of pride that he was holding. When he gave it up, when he learned that lesson, when he acknowledged that God rules from heaven, that his is the everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, that's when he was restored. That's when he was restored. 
And in the end, this was his conclusion in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All whose works are truth in his ways, judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase or to humble, to bring to the point where they will learn the same lesson. Now, here's the thing. We have the, le- the choice before us. I can learn the lesson the easy way. And by faith, trust that God is supreme and providential in his interactions with me and with you. Or I can continue in my pride and learn it the hard way. The choice is ours. <laughs> the choice is ours. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of this dealing with your people, that you would take the time to, le- to, to leave a lesson that is for all time. And God, I pray that we would, be, we would not be those who would remove you from the rightful position that you hold as sovereign king and ruler. And God, by your grace, may we be those who would never climb to that position ourselves or strive to sit in, the, in, in your throne, as it were. I pray, Lord, that by your grace we might be humble. Your word says that you resist the proud, that you come against them, that you stand as one who would correct them, and as Nebuchadnezzar said, would bring them to humility. And we thank you for that, Lord. It also says that you are near those who are humble. Those who would, Lord, acknowledge your position and your authority, who would walk in obedience and faith. We praise you, Lord, that we are your people, that you have provided for us. You've granted us uh, salvation through your son, Jesus Christ, and through him alone. Help us, Lord, to be those Uh, be those humble servants seeking to do your will day in and day out. We praise you, God. We thank you. And as we come now to worship, we ask, Lord, that you would receive it as the humble offering of our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.